In your Bible this evening, we would direct your attention to Psalm 103. If you're using the Pew Bible, this is found on page 690. After we read from the Word of God, we'll also read from the Heidelberg Catechism this evening from Lord's Day 21. And in your Forms and Prayers book, you find this on page 222. As we continue to follow the various articles of the Apostles' Creed, we come this evening to a Lord's Day that covers three of the articles, the article concerning the church, uh, the article concerning the communion of the saints, and the article also concerning the forgiveness uh, of our sins. And so we've chosen to read from Psalm 103, a familiar psalm, but we turn our attention to it once again this evening. We read there as follows, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust." As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his. Bless the Lord, all his works, and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We then turn to the Heidelberg Catechism summary, uh, Lord's Day 21, which has three questions. First of all, question 54. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? And the answer, I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community I am and always will be a living member. Question 55 asks, what do you understand by the communion of saints? And the answer first, that believers one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. Question 56, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? And the answer, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. 
Rather, by His grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, by way of introduction, I want to begin this evening with a few questions. And I know sometimes introductions by way of questions, those questions can be easily either deflected or they can perhaps become distracting. What do I mean by questions that are deflected? Well, beginning a sermon with questions can almost set the listener up to take a defensive posture, to deflect the question, to say, well, I'm not sure what he's all about this evening, but that question certainly wasn't for me. Or maybe, oh, what is he getting at? Is he trying to to pick on me or to pick on us? And that's why I can assure you these questions are questions that I ask myself and that I wrestle with myself. And the motive behind these questions is not one of seeking to uh, stir the pot, so to speak, or grind an axe, but rather these questions are intended to perhaps open up our own thoughts as we reflect upon the biblical truths which we seek to expound this evening. So the first question that I would honestly ask you is, do you love the church? Now you can think of different organizations that people are very loyal to. You know, you can talk to men and they are either a Ford man or a Chevy man. Now, maybe they're a Dodge man, but for the most part, at least when I was growing up, it was either Ford or Chevy. And men are dedicated to their beliefs. They'll decorate their garages celebrating what they believe is the best truck. Or perhaps it's a certain seed corn brand. Not only are the signs placed alongside the fields, and not only are the, the caps worn that advertise, well, this man, uh, he, he follows, or he sells, or he exclusively buys that brand. And this man over here, well, he's all about that brand. You can think of perhaps sports teams or colleges or universities. Some people are fiercely loyal to a certain institution. They wear its colors with pride. They cheer no matter if the team is good or if the team is going through one of those proverbial rebuilding seasons. But what about our attitude towards the church? Would we be characterized as those who are fiercely in love and loyal to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What about your attitude towards this church? You see, it's one thing to kind of ask the question from an arm's length away. But when it becomes personal, what about this local congregation which God's providence has placed us within? Do you, do I love this church with its strengths, 
And yes, not with a critical spirit, but with an honest evaluation also with its weaknesses. Because this church is not, is not the triumphant church. This church is not the church in glory. This church is a part of the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ which Christ loves with an eternal, infinite love, a redemptive love. But the church militant on this side of glory always has her spots. I think originally it was somewhat of a a joke, but it has a strong element of truth to it. It's been said, if you ever find the perfect church, please don't join it, because you'd be the one to ruin it. I'm not perfect, and you're not perfect. We are not perfect. So we should not be surprised that we as a church are not perfect. Because what is the church? It's not the pews, it's not the flooring, it's not the plaster, it's not the roof, it's not the building, it's not even the history of a certain ecclesiastical organization. The church is a body of believers, a body of persons brought together underneath God's electing grace in providence within a certain place to be a community, a community of believers, an active community of believers, not simply coming week by week with a passive consumer mentality, a passive mentality that says, well, I'll sit here and I'll see what this body can do for me. Not a consumer mentality, well, I'll take what I like, but then I'm quickly out of there. Like when you run into Walmart to find those one or two items, and then you try to get out of there as quickly as possible. That's not what the church is intended to be, but rather an active community of believers. Believers who do not believe in their own potential, Believers who do not believe in their own wisdom or skill sets, but believers who believe in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, including especially His redemptive work. Believers who believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom they are the chief. Believers who believe that for the exclusive basis of Christ's blood, They are forgiven sinners, and therefore they are saints. And so again, I circle back around and I ask you as I ask myself this question, do you love the church? Do you love this church? With the time afforded us this evening, and I recognize that the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism, you might say, throws many, many, many doctrines into this Lord's Day. So it's not our intention to give an exhaustive, that would be impossible, explanation of these doctrines, but rather uh, to skim the surface, but do so with a focused intent to look at redemption in the church of Jesus Christ. Noticing, first of all, the nature of the church And then secondly, the participation in the church. And then thirdly, the forgiveness for the church. So redemption in the church of Jesus Christ. The nature of the church, the participation in the church, and then the forgiveness 
for the church. And again, I'm going to stress that I'm going to attempt to be concise and precise. So first of all, the nature of the church, what is the church? Allow me to say just a few things of what it is not. It is not, nor is it supposed to be, a collection of individuals who share a common ethnic heritage exclusively. Now, we do, many of us, share a common ethnic heritage, but that is not the essence of the church. The church is not simply a gathering of those who are at the same social level. At least the church is not supposed to be. The church is made up, or at least is supposed to be made up, of those who are rich and those who are poor. The church is not just simply a historical society. Now, in many towns, including our own here in Pella, historical societies serve a wonderful purpose. They remind us of our past, but the danger with a historical society is that they become stuck in the past. Now, we like to look at pictures, I assume, of life in Pella in a former day, but to pretend that we lived in that former day would be absolutely foolish. I like to look at pictures of vintage farm equipment. But as many of you could well testify, if I tried to farm today with vintage farm equipment, it'd be an exercise in absolute foolishness and folly. So what then is the church? It is an assembled group of people who have been gathered by the triune God to the triune God. Flowing out of the decree of eternal election, as we read so clearly in Ephesians 1, God has this eternal purpose that He would gather together a special people for Himself, that those people would share in His life, would share in His covenantal life, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share life together, and that redeemed men and women Boys and girls would also be brought into that experience of covenantal life. And so God had that eternal decree. And in time, that eternal decree was realized through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit from Pentecost on poured out the abundance, the fullness of the measure of the grace and the mercy that Jesus Christ obtained. And that results in the gathering together of a certain people. And they are gathered together underneath the preaching of the Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so that's why the Word of God has such central importance, or at least it should have such central importance for the life of the church. And in passing, that's why many, many, many an organization or ecclesiastical body has tried all sorts of gimmicks, tactics, tricks, strategies to build a church. But if it's not built upon the Word of God, it's built upon sinking sand, as many a denomination can testify. As you look upon its edifices and they lie crumbling in the wave of human history. So the church is an organization, a body of believers that from all of eternity, but then also realized in time, is drawn together as they respond positively to the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ Himself is at the center of that church. 
or at least he should be. But at times, there is the danger that the centrality of Christ become eclipsed by something else that becomes the main issue. And it's always interesting, and perhaps it'd be good for all of us to look upon our own church and see, what is it that we say that we are about? What would be our purpose statement or our vision or our mission statement? Would it focus upon Christ? Because the church ultimately exists for no one else other than Christ. That's why the church is, and there are so many different words that are given in Scripture to the church. One of them is the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And I don't know if you probably don't have the opportunity. I have the opportunity when I officiate at a wedding ceremony to, to get a little bit of a glimpse in between the, the interaction between a bride and a groom. Now, there's all sorts of nerves. I always tell them before, you know, I'm going to give a message. Hardly can call it a sermon because the time is very short that they always allot to me. I say, I'll give you a message, and I say, I, I don't think you're going to hear a word I say. You're going to be staring at each other's eyes. You're going to be nervous. The day's already been long. And... But I kind of watch their interaction. And if things are the way they should be in their relationship, the bride is all about the groom. I mean, the bride's not looking at me. The bride's not looking at the groomsmen. The bride's not looking at the bridesmaids. The bride's not looking at the individuals, families, and relatives who are gathered together. The bride is looking at the bridegroom. And that's the way it must be for us as a church. That we would be so enamored by Christ, so focused upon Christ, that He would be at the very center of all that we are and all that we do. And that we would be so drawn to Him that we would be a living member with spiritual life in our soul. And this begins to hint towards a distinction that was already evident in Israel. There, there were individuals who were of the broader nation of Israel, but who were not really of Israel. And we make our distinctions, don't we, between baptized members and professing members? And that's a valid distinction. We make a distinction between charter members but among the most important distinctions is the distinction between a living member and a member by name only. A living member is a person who has grace within their soul that produces the exercise of faith, and that faith displays itself with action, and action in a participation and that's our second point, because a living member is just that. They're alive. They're alive by way of a common union with Christ. Spiritual life only comes by a person being spiritually united to the person of Jesus Christ. By this common union 
that is brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit is poured out into the hearts of the elect, that Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the Word, produces the exercise of faith, and that faith is like the spiritual hand that lays hold onto the person and the work and also then the benefits of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, that is the real secret, if we can call it a secret, that's the real secret to the vitality of a church. Living, active, mature faith in Jesus Christ as He is proclaimed through the Word of God. And when there is this common union, then all of the individuals who have that living faith in Jesus Christ, they are then spiritually connected one to another. Now, they don't always agree with one another on all the issues. They don't always agree with one another in all of their likes and dislikes. But living members of the church have to agree in this, that Christ is their Savior, and that they are actively exercising faith in Him and in Him alone. And when you get a gathering of people, whether it be two or three or twenty or thirty or two hundred or three hundred or two thousand or three thousand, when you get a body of individuals all exercising faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those individuals will have a common unity amongst themselves that will include then service towards one another. And this is where the analogy that the Apostle Paul unfolds in 1 Corinthians 12 becomes so powerfully evident. We're not going to read 1 Corinthians 12 in its entirety. Uh, We read a large section of it in our catechism class this morning, and I'd encourage you to read the entirety of the chapter this evening. But I simply quote one verse, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18, but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as He pleased. And the Apostle Paul paints this wonderful illustration using the human body. Our human body, boys and girls, you know this, your human body is made up of different parts. You have an eye, you have a nose, well, you have two eyes, you have a nose, you have ears, you have hands, you have feet. And each one of those is part of the body. I mean, your eye by itself isn't a body. It's a part of the body. And your eye is connected in a certain way to your nose and to your mouth and to your hand and to your foot. And one of the ways that you can tell if a body is healthy is how the different parts of the body all work together. So, for example, the eye directs the actions of the hand many times or the actions of the foot. And so if you, if you trip and if you stumble... Your mother might say, watch where you're going. Not implying that you should try to walk with your eyeballs. That'd be silly, but let your eyes help your feet. And if you're going to try to eat a dinner, you don't, I hope you don't at least, just bury your face into the plate of food and eat like a dog. I think you'd probably do that once, and your mother would say, cut that out, knock it off. That's not how you eat. No, you use your hand. But you don't take your food and just try to smash it up into your hand and think that that will benefit your body, but your hand rather takes the food and places it into your mouth. And the idea that the Apostle Paul is getting at 
applies into the, the church. There are different members in this church with different skills, with different perspectives, with different opportunities for service, with different gifts and talents. And the great danger is that we become critical of someone else who's not doing what we think they ought to do, but not recognizing that their skill, their talent might be different than ours. And if we were all completely alike, well, then we wouldn't be a body. And then the whole function of the church would not be smooth and would not be conducive to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And so if, and I don't say that with a questioning, but perhaps the word since would be better, since you are a living member of the church, God has given you a spiritual gift, or gifts, plural. Not just to bury those talents in the fields of passivity, but rather to employ those talents, to use those talents, and to do for, with the, the proper attitude, the attitude of a certain eagerness and a certain cheerfulness. And so here also I would just pause and ask a few questions by way of application. Have you considered what in humility your spiritual gift is, or gifts, plural? I want to eliminate a few that are not spiritual gifts. Hypercritical attitudes towards other churches is not a spiritual gift that you will find listed in the Bible. Hypercritical spirit toward other members in your own church is not a spiritual gift that you will find in the Bible. The ability to identify what others ought to be doing. I don't know where you find that in the Bible. Examples of the gifts for Christian service include hospitality. Is that a gift that you have? To be hospitable in conversation? To be hospitable in the opening up of your home for Christian fellowship? Interacting with others within the Christian congregation? Uh, what about a compassionate spirit, a special eye to identify those in the congregation who may need a word of encouragement? Who sees the, the young parents overwhelmed with the parenting of toddlers and goes, I remember those days, and so I'm going to give a word of encouragement. Maybe even a hand of assistance. The spiritual gift of intercessory prayer for the entire congregation, but especially for those in positions of leadership within the congregation. Do you intercede on their behalf with cheer and eagerness? Not begrudgingly. I mean, here again, boys and girls, maybe your, your mom says, well, 
go clean up your room, you go, okay, I guess, if I have to. And you go up the stairs or down the stairs, kind of grumbling to yourself, and I can almost imagine you picking up your room, sitting on your bed, clothes are all around, you pick up a sock, throw it in the dirty clothes, go, I don't know why I have to do this. That's not cheerful. That's not eagerness. But rather a quickness to, to do what needs to be done. Think of how life in the church would be revolutionized if individuals came eager to serve. Not critical about how they're not being served, but eager to serve. I believe that it would bring a new spirit of life to many, many, many a church. If individuals came asking, where can I serve? What can I do? Tell me what needs to be done. And then with eagerness, picked up the task to be done. Well, you might say, well, all of this is rather convicting, and it is to myself as well. And that's why we need to move on to the third point, the forgiveness for the church. I have a quote. Well, I have a couple of quotes. The first one I want to give you, the forgiveness of sins is the heart of the gospel. The forgiveness of sins is the heart of the gospel. When you think of that living member of the church, figuratively speaking, but maybe also practically speaking, that living member of the church who is seated in front of you, behind you, next to you, I want you to know two things about them. Now, I prefaced it with the living member. He or she is a sinner. Make no mistake about it. He or she is a sinner. But if they are a living member believing in Jesus Christ, they are a forgiven sinner. And why are they forgiven? Because God loved them. And God knows their imperfections far better than you ever will. But God loved them. Now imagine for a moment in a wedding party that the bride made all her preparations, right? She went and got her hair done professionally, makeup applied professionally. I don't know if that's the right word to use. Maybe that'll get me in trouble later, but I mean, she's spent the entire day preparing herself. She's adorned for the groom. And imagine, for just a moment and then banish the thought from your mind, imagine that the best man said to the groom, boy, I was looking at your bride and I noticed a few things wrong with her. What do you think the groom's response would be? Don't you think he would say, that's my bride, and I love her. Your fellow living member is a sinner who is forgiven. Forgiven out of grace and out of mercy. 
in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Concerning that person, the Word of God says in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the basis for this forgiveness, again, is exclusively Christ. And so you can say it this way, every person who is in the church as a living member is on the same footing, the same ground, the same level. There's not graduated degrees of church membership. If you're a living member of the church, you are a living member of the church because God has loved you in Christ and has forgiven you your sins for the sake of Jesus Christ's perfect work. And that's the only reason And what this ought to do is produce within us a a profound humility, but alongside of that, a profound confidence. A humility that will then demonstrate itself with a desire to glorify our God for the great riches which are ours in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is this reality of a double imputation that all of my guilt is placed onto Jesus Christ, and all of His righteousness is given to me so that, according to what Luther would often say, uh, I, I sit here as a sinful saint or a saintly sinner, both at the same time. I know that in and of myself I am a sinner, but I know that by the imputation of Christ's righteousness I am a saint. And the humility is is that that's nothing to do with what I have done. But it has everything to do with what Christ has done. And so along with that humility, there is then this confidence. The confidence that in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Completely forgiven totally forgiven, eternally forgiven. But now I have to, as we begin to draw to a close, I have to clarify that this promise is for those who are living members of the church. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Notice I didn't ask who your father was or who your grandfather was or who your great-grandfather was. Your ancestors may have crossed the ocean with Skolti himself. That doesn't make you a living member of the church. You may have sat at the feet of some of the most notable Reformed ministers. That doesn't make you a living member in and of itself. Well, what does make one a living member? Faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you hear these words, along with it comes a call to examine yourself. Do you personally believe on the finished work of Jesus Christ as your only hope for eternity? say, well, why do, you, why do you so often go this way? 
because I cannot escape the words of Jesus Christ. Many will say, Lord, did we not do this and did we not do that? And the Lord will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And imagine just for a moment the horror of hearing such a pronouncement. Of hearing Christ say, I never knew you. Sometimes, you know, when I, I don't do it very often, but I have a hotel reservation and go to check in, I always have this kind of like fear in the back of my mind. What if my reservation didn't go through? What if I get here and we don't, we don't have anything reserved for you? I don't know, you're out on the street. I'm able to reason myself and say, it's probably not going to happen. And if it does happen, there's lots of hotels, there's lots of rooms. But imagine just for a moment coming to the brink of eternity and looking into eternity and hearing Christ say, I never knew you. Depart. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, I command you to do so. If you do believe, then rest assured all of the benefits of salvation, including the forgiveness of sins, which is the very essence of salvation, are yours because of grace and because of mercy. And let that reality then impact how you view the church, how you view this church, how you view your spiritual brothers and sisters in this church. And so next time you talk about them or to them, remember, they're a sinner who has been forgiven. Amen.